Today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about some pretty heady stuff. So if you haven't already, you might want to sign up for the $6 Patreon option so you can get the transcript and hit all the scriptural references here. On this episode, I have Sean Anderson on the podcast to talk about the one-man doctrine. We cover what it is, the history of it in Mormonism, where the idea sprouts from, and all its implications. We then take a deep dive into scripture and history, and what we find is that scripture might be saying something completely different than what many of us had supposed. Because this conversation touches so heavily on the ideas of keys and authority, we are forced to take a pretty significant dive into the second anointing and the principles of priesthood keys and presiding. Get ready for a thought-provoking episode of the Mormon Renegade Podcast. Look, it's no secret that our society has become much more crude and coarse. To become and raise men and women of virtue and character is a Herculean task. To help with this, I have recently wrote and published a book. Now, back in the 1700s, Washington had a book called Rules of Civility and Decent Behavior in Company and Conversation. It was a book with 110 rules that talked about how to conduct yourself like a civilized person in society, something that today's society is sorely lacking. What I did is I went back through the book and I reinterpreted his original sayings for the 21st century. So the book is laid out in a way in which you see Washington's original rule. Right below that is my explanation for the 21st century. And below that, you'll find two or three examples of where to use this in the real world. Now, to go along with this, there's a workbook that helps parents teach these principles and practices to their kids. To find the book, go to mormonrenegade.com, go to the bottom of the page, Search out the blog post and order your copy today. I can bear personal testimony from personal experience that this is an invaluable tool to help you raise men and women of virtue and character. Okay, just a couple of quick announcements here. If you're looking for a place to attend sacrament meeting and don't know where to go, I want you to reach out to me. Me and others stand ready to help you find a spiritual home, whether that's a new church, a gathering spot of independence, or even if you just need a soft place to land for a time to learn how to have sacrament meeting in your own home. Myself and others stand ready to help you find that place. All you gotta do is just drop me a line at mormonrenegade at gmail.com and we'll quickly reach out to you to help you find the place you want and need to be. Next, I have felt for a while now that the sisters haven't had a good place to go to have their questions answered without a bunch of dudes creeping around. To fill this need, my wife Tanya has set up a Facebook group just for women to talk about questions about fundamentalism. The name of that group is Mormon Fundamentalism for Women. Now, just a warning. If you're a dude thinking about trying to jump on this site, I'm going to give this to you in my best Liam Neeson impression. I have a certain set of skills, and I'll find you, and I will publicly mock you endlessly, without mercy, for many, many weeks. So whether you're a fundamentalist woman seeking sisterhood or a woman investigating fundamentalism, this place is for you. Again, the name of that Facebook group is Mormon Fundamentalism for Women. How you doing, dude? Pretty good. Good. 
Good. How far how how far did you have to drive this morning? Oh, just about it was about thirty five minutes or so. Whew. Well, thanks for doing that. I appreciate it. I didn't realize it was that far out for you. So, so well, if I could have gone to Justin's, it would have only been like you know three minutes. But right, <laughs> but he's out of town, so I couldn't use that facility. Yeah, no, I get it. So I've had you on before, but I had you on with Michael Ness. And we didn't have a a chance to kind of go over your story a little bit. So I want to do that first. Now, were you raised a fundamentalist? No. No? Were you always mainstream LDS? Or or how how did you come to be a fundamentalist? That's that's, – I think we did go over it in the last time we spoke. But uh, I'll give you a quick rundown. Yeah. And um, I was – my dad was – you know, came from LDS stock. And so naturally, uh, when I was, when I was 10 years old, I was baptized in in the mainstream church as was everybody in my family. You know, that, um, my, my mother was a widow with three daughters and my dad was divorced. And, and when they married, uh, he, you know, she came into the marriage with three daughters in tow. And I don't think that they ever converted to, to the church, but uh, the rest of us, you know, we naturally were grafted into the mainstream church. And as far as uh, my foray into fundamentalism, interesting thing about my dad's side of the family is that uh, it was unbeknownst to me until I was about 13 that uh, he also came from fundamentalist stock. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but that that wasn't made known to me until after I started delving into fundamental fundamentalist principles, and that's actually what caused my dad to sit down and have a talk with me about it. But I was uh, thirteen at the time. I was th- uh, thirteen at the time. I was very active in the church. I was the only member of my family at the time that was active. Um, I was ordained deacon at the age of twelve, and. Um, around the time I was uh, 13, um, me and another guy by the name of David Schellenberg were uh, out running around, you know, bearing our testimonies of the gospel. And and word of that got to the local Catholic priest. And uh, so he wanted to have a conversation with, with us. Um, David was advised by his parents not to go, and and I didn't really feel to even bring it up to my parents, so I went. <laughs> And that's when I had a conversation with this Catholic priest, and his entire thing was to show me how Joseph Smith was a false prophet. And in doing so, uh, he uh, was saying that Joseph taught that man may become God and stuff like that, and so we had a debate about that. And uh, I think he felt somewhat concerned because I was 13, and I was already able to uh, debate him on that basis. Uh, I was quoting from Genesis, from Psalms, from, from John to make the case. And, uh, and, uh, he, uh, it was kind of, I could tell he was frustrated and maybe not so frustrated in his own stance, but the fact that, that he was dealing with a 13 year old and, and I, I could present a good argument. And it was shortly after that, that when I was in school, uh, my classmates put on my desk, a stack about that thick of anti-Mormon literature, Ooh. those little pamphlets, and that's the first I really became acquainted with uh, principles um, 
with the principles of uh, plural marriage and Adam God, for instance. And so I started, I read them at first, and my first inclination was to think that these uh, anti-Mormons just totally lying. Because mm -hmm. none of this was taught when I was in church. Uh, but the, an interesting thing happened, it haunted me. I remember it wouldn't give me any peace, and I remember it brought me to um, it brought me into a prayer where I asked a Father in Heaven why I couldn't get any peace on this. What was it about what I read that just kept bugging me? Well, I was impressed to read um, uh, to reread some of those uh, pamphlets and to ignore the commentary, but just hone in on the quotations where they quoted from. Uh, Joseph Smith, John Taylor, and, uh, Brigham Young, and so forth. And it was in reading those quotations that I got a testimony of those things. Mm. And uh, so you could say I've been a fundamentalist since I was 13, but I was, you know, in the church at the time. And I didn't actively seek out uh, fundamentalist groups or acquaintances until I was uh, 23, 24. Wow. Wow. Dude, you were a better young man than I was. At 13, I was starting to get into trouble. And at 13, you're like hanging out with your buddy going, we should go bear testimony. I mean, holy cow, that good for you. I I was not in that mode at 13. So so you you become a fundamentalist, and this is where I think we'll we'll roll roll, unless you wanted to add more. No, the only thing I wanted to add is just uh at one time, our school, when uh, the teachers went on strike, so we would go to school not knowing whether there was going to be any classes or not, whether class would be in session or not. And one of the days when there wasn't, all, all of us kids just showed up to school and there wasn't any class in session. Um, I remember one time when David Schellenberg and I were under a tree reading the Book of Mormon to a good majority of our classmates. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they were liking it. I remember that. They they were digging and on this is, Mormonism. Yeah, this is if if I'm not mistaken, this is uh, when I was in. Uh, they call it uh, second of secondary school, but it's the equivalent of eighth grade. Okay, gotcha. I was 13 at the time when when that took place. You were just out there teaching under a tree. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. So. Let me ask, let's roll right in then to, to the subject at hand, which is the one-man doctrine. If you're in, first off, define what the one-man doctrine is for, for folks who may not be up to date about what it is. Well, the one-man doctrine, in essence, states that the keys of the priesthood can only be uh, exercised by one man at a time on the earth. And they take this understanding from um, section 132, verse 7, where, and I'll go ahead and read it. Uh, let me see. I'm a little slow with this kind of stuff. You'll have to Oh, you're good. Me. You're just fine. You want me to read but that? Anyway, yeah, go ahead. Okay. Uh, the, the parenthetical. Okay. Um, 132.7, I'll start um, right here. Holy... Um, I'll just read the whole thing so no one can accuse us of taking anything out of context. How's that? Okay. All right. And verily, I say unto you that the conditions of this law are these. All covenants, contracts, bonds, obligation, oaths, vows, performances, connections, associations, 
or expectations that are not made and entered into and sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise of him who is anointed both as well for time and for all eternity, and that to most holy by revelation uh, commandment through the medium of mine anointed, whom I have appointed on the earth to hold this power, and I have appointed unto my servant Joseph to hold this power in the last days, and there is never but one on the earth at a time on whom these keys of this priesthood are conferred, are of no efficacy, virtue, or force in and after the resurrection from the dead. For all contracts that are not made unto this end have an end when men are dead. Yeah, that's it. But anyway, uh, based off of that, uh, uh, what most people in Mormonism uh, take from that is that there's only one guy who can do this. And uh, they'll they'll say that he can delegate that to others, but you know that delegation is temporary for the others to to be able to do that and under his auspices. That's exactly. kind of how they understand that. And um, well, naturally, um, having read the scriptures myself, hold, hold on one second. So okay. I, I want to break this down real quick. So some of the groups within Mormonism that might be considered one man. Uh, adherence would be like the LDS Church, right? Right. Probably the the uh, the the Righteous Branch, the Peterson Group. I I know for a fact. And then any at the FLDS were. I'm not sure where they stand now. I haven't talked with many people yet on this. Um, they hold to the one man doctrine. And then anybody else you can think of off uh, the AUB with the AUB. Okay. Yes. All right. Anyone else you can think of? Uh, I believe the Kingstons uh, buy into that as well. Okay. All uh, right. But I'm not too sure about them, but uh, the general and even amongst independents believe in that concept, but they believe that that office has been lost. Okay. So they believe it has to be restored, but nevertheless, you know, uh, many people still believe in that concept. So, so there's there are. Others, there are independents who believe that that in this one man doctrine, so to speak, right. but they believe that office is just lost. So we're waiting for that office to be re restored. Is that kind of the, the right? The, the thrust? Yeah, basically, yeah. They look at it as um, they look at it as waiting for the one mighty and strong to come okay. to set things in order. And another one, another one that has promoted that belief, but they believe that only Joseph Smith. Um, is in that position. Okay. And so, but they believe that, you know, his authority can carry on and so forth. And, and uh, so basically that's kind of a, a general spectrum. Gotcha. Okay. So from, from there, that that's kind of their, their, uh, their understanding and, and on a, Oh, just a quick read. It sure sounds like that in, in 132.7, right? Is that there's only one right. man. So at, at what point did you, were you like, oh, okay, something doesn't fit here. At what point do you remember thinking, maybe this isn't what we think it's, maybe this, this scripture isn't saying what we think it's saying? Well, uh, as you know, I was uh, in the AUB in the, in the early, uh, early to mid nineties. And I, I didn't uh I wasn't officially removed from the AUB till about you know ninety nine, mm -hmm. but anyway um uh, when it first 
when it first uh, started to enter my mind, there's, there was a lot of um, emphasis put on you have to get the permission of the head of the priesthood uh, to pretty much advance, you know, in the ordinances, whether it be your endowment, whether you want to tender the principal, they basically all, you know, would say that you have to get the uh, permission from the one guy or the man who holds the keys or the president. In this case, uh, in the AUB, it was Brother Owen Allred. And so that was the, uh, and there's a part of me that, you know, that I've, I've grown kind of, um, in my life, I've kind of grown uh, to not to not trust implicitly authorities placed over me, whether they be ecclesiastic or, or political. Mm -hmm. I think many men are prone to prejudice, and they have a tendency. I, most most people have a tendency to make judgments based on what they hear or without really looking into it, or something triggers them about what something you said or whatever, and they form an opinion without actually um, looking into what you meant. Because sometimes we know we don't speak properly or we say something um, that conveys a different idea than what we meant. And um, in my experience in life, I found that most people do that, whether mm -hmm. they be in leadership positions or, or not. I mean, I definitely saw this in the LDS um, organization from men who were appointed to be uh, leaders where they would listen, uh, listen to a rumor or whatever, and they went off of that. Right. And I found that, generally speaking, this was more uh, more the rule and not the exception. Gotcha. Which is kind of a shame because it should be the other way around. Right. But anyway, um, things uh, statements like that didn't sit right with me. And it sounded, to me, it sounded a little too arbitrary. And... Um, so I started uh, just I, as I do often. I'll, I'll I'll go through a mental exercise. When I first entered the um, the AUB, I was satiated with the idea that the president of the church can lead you astray because he's president of the church. He's not the president of priesthood. So I, you know, they I was told that I was just looking at the wrong office. Okay. That's the man that can't lead us astray, kind of thing. And and so it's the president of the priesthood, not the president of the church. And that at times they have been both and the same. So that I was satiated by that for for some time. It satisfied me for a little for a little while. But then I started thinking, well, what if the president of the priesthood leads me astray? What then? Right. And I started I started rationalizing. I can't take that off the table simply because that would be a violation of his agency. Right. Um, and then I got to thinking about what Wilford Woodruff said about the man will, that the Lord will not lead someone in this position to lead you astray. For if he, for if he did, he would remove him. And I'm thinking to myself, um, well, first of all, I think a lot of people immediately attribute that the Lord will take his life. Right. But removing can mean something else. He can remove him from a, a position where he's a prophet by not speaking to him anymore. He could be removed from his position as president of the right. church. That can mean, a, you know, quite a few different things. But more than anything is, if the Lord was to remove someone from that gift, does that necessitate that we as a body of the church would know that? No, not necessarily. Would they be willing to, 
would they be willing to admit that? As a matter of fact, Section 121 kind of argues against it. Right. Because it says, ere they are aware, they are, they're, they are left unto themselves. Now, the word ere, in this, in this uh, that's E-R-E, ere they are aware, literally means before they are aware, they are, they are left unto themselves. Oh. To kick against the pricks, to persecute the saints, to fight against God. I see. So, and why is that? Because the spirit of the Lord has departed from them. Right. Right. And and it, and it tells us how why the spirit of the Lord departs because they sought to gratify their pride and chose to exercise unrighteous dominion upon those they're there to serve. Yeah. Yeah, and and again, um I believe it's 121 that talks about, you know, um it's the disposition of most men that when they gain that kind of power, they want to hold on to it. Right. Um, right. And, and so there, there's a little bit of this, you know, not, not wanting to let that go or, you know, gosh, as, as I think about human nature and human tendencies, I could even see where if, if there was a man in charge who felt that way, he'd be like, well, I don't see another worthy successor around me. So, I, by necessity, have to stay here and figure this all out. Right. Gotcha. gotcha. Well, anyway, it's in, you quoted that, um, that we have learned by sad experience that it is the nature and disposition of almost all men. Right. That the moment they get a little authority, I think the next words are really interesting, as they suppose. Mm. In other words, that, that kind of states that they don't have this kind of authority. The minute they get a little authority, as they suppose, it says they begin to exercise unrighteous dominion. Well, the rest of the scripture goes on to tell you that there is no authority like that. Right. That the minute you do that, you don't have authority. Right. Okay. And so um, I think that's the basis of this entire um, line of thinking. I think section 121, I think, forms the basis of of the nature of the authority of the fullness of the priesthood or the keys of the priesthood as is not, uh, usually known as. But anyway, when I started thinking that way, I said a prayer. After my prayer, I was impressed to read section 84. And this is one of the things that kind of jumped out at me. And, and I'll, uh, I'll go ahead and uh, go into that. Now, of course, I started out by, with, uh, can the president of the priesthood lead us astray? And if that is the case, then what do we do? Right. Does that mean we're as as you know in the vernacular? Does that mean we're SOL? <laughs> right. Right. I said yeah, no, because yeah, I don't think that we are. Right. But anyway, so therefore, I think that naturally leads to if that guy uh, leads us astray, and Joseph Smith stated that the keys would not be removed from the earth again. And and if that was the case, then would the Lord not provide a way? He would have to. A ram in the thicket, as it were. Right. He he would kind of have to because he's promised that the keys would never leave the earth again. And if one man is the leader of a group and and he he falls, you know, for whatever reason, the Lord still has to honor that promise that somehow those keys are going to be preserved in the earth. So in um, 
in Doctrine and Covenants, uh, section 84, starting in verse 33, it says, For whoso is faithful unto the obtaining these two priesthoods, of which I have spoken, and the magnifying their calling, are sanctified by the Spirit unto the renewing of their bodies. It says, They become the sons of Moses and of Aaron and the seed of Abraham, and the church and kingdom and the elect of God. I, I find it interesting because it says we become the church. Right. This is after magnifying. Right. So I think that that's a question that should be in our mind as to what that means. I said, because, you know, most of us have been members of the church for quite some time before we even get the priesthood. Right. So what does that mean as we become the church and kingdom and the elect of God? And it says, and also all they who receive this priesthood receive me, saith the Lord. For he that receiveth my servants, and I want to bring special attention there that it doesn't say servant. Right. It says, for he that receiveth my servants receiveth me. Interesting. And he that receiveth me receiveth my father. And he that receiveth my father receiveth my father's kingdom. Therefore, all that my father hath shall be given unto him. And this is according to the oath and covenant which belongeth to the priesthood. Therefore, all those who receive the priesthood receive this oath and covenant of my father, which he cannot break, neither can it be moved. And it says, for, but whoso breaketh this covenant after he hath received it, and altogether turneth therefrom, shall not have forgiveness of sins in this world nor in the world to come. And woe unto all those who come not unto this priesthood which ye have received. Hmm. Now, which priesthood is it talking about? Well, if we read for, uh, earlier on, it, speaking about the higher priesthood, which is claim, uh, plainly uh, being spoken of here, it says, And this greater priesthood administereth the, the gospel, the gospel and, and holdeth the key of the mysteries of the kingdom, even the key of the knowledge of God. Hmm. Therefore, in the ordinances thereof, and the power the power of godliness is manifest. And without the ordinances thereof, and the authority of the priesthood, the power of godliness is not manifest unto men in the flesh. For without this, no man can see the face of God, even the Father, and live. Now this Moses plainly taught to the children of Israel in the wilderness, and sought diligently to sanctify his people that they might behold the face of God. But they hardened their hearts and could not endure his presence. Therefore, the Lord in his wrath, for his anger was kindled against them, swore that they would not enter into his rest while in the wilderness, which rest is the fullness of his glory. Therefore, he took Moses out of their midst and the holy priesthood also. And the lesser priesthood continued, which priesthood holdeth the key of the ministering of angels and the preparatory gospel which gospel is the gospel of repentance and of baptism and of remission of sins and the law of carnal commandments, which the Lord in his wrath caused to continue with the house of Aaron among the children of Israel until John, whom God raised up being filled with the Holy Ghost from his mother's womb. Well, it's showing you, um, it said woe to all those who come not under this priesthood. Right. And here it gives you an example of what he means by woe. Because it says that these people hardened their hearts against the teachings of Moses. And the teachings of Moses were directed at bringing them into the presence of God. 
Yeah, and if I'm not mistaken, didn't Joseph have a a quote at which he said that that one of the reasons that the children of Israel's minds were darkened was because they didn't want to meet the Lord? They just basically told Moses, "You just go up the mountain and you talk to God, and we'll right. we'll take take we'll we'll take whatever you have to say as gospel. We're good with this." Right. You speak to him on our behalf. We don't want that responsibility. Gotcha. But anyway, um, so after reading that, what caught my attention was that part that says the oath and covenant of the priesthood. And when I read it, it seemed vaguely familiar. So I went back to section 132. What is this oath and covenant? In section 132, uh, verse 26. You want me to read that? Yeah, let me let me make sure that's what it is before you start reading. But notice how it, it talks about that this oath and covenant can be broken by God. Right. I'm going to make a point on that in a minute, but go ahead and read uh, verse 26. Verily, verily, I say unto you, if a man marry a wife according to my word, and they are sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise according to mine appointment, and he or she shall commit any sin or transgression of the new and everlasting covenant, whatever, and all manner of blasphemes, and if they commit no murder wherein they shed innocent blood, yet they shall come forth in the first resurrection and enter into their exaltation, but they shall be destroyed in the flesh and shall be delivered unto the buffetings of Satan, unto the day of redemption, saith the Lord. Go ahead and read 27 as well. The blasphemy against the Holy Ghost, which shall not be forgiven in the world, nor uh, nor out of the world, is in that ye commit murder, wherein ye shed innocent blood, and assent unto death, after ye have received my new and everlasting covenant, saith the Lord God. And he that abideth not this law can in no wise enter into my glory, but shall be damned, saith the Lord. Okay. Now we'll go back to section um, 8. 84, it says, And he that receiveth my uh, my father receiveth my father's kingdom, therefore all that my father hath shall be given unto him. And this is according to the oath and covenant which belongeth to the priesthood. Therefore all those who receive the priesthood receive this oath and covenant of my father, which he cannot break, neither can it be moved. Hmm. Notice how it just said that if you were to uh, commit any transgression or, or sin and all right. manner of blasphemy, Save it be the shedding of innocent blood. Right. It says you enter into your exaltation. Right. It does say you'll be delivered to the buffetings of Satan, but you already have an exaltation assured. Okay. But it says, and whoso breaketh this covenant after he hath received it and altogether turneth therefrom, shall not have forgiveness of sins in this world nor in the world to come. I think section 27 defines that. Right. I mean, that's section 27. 132 verse 27 right but anyway so when i read those kind of things one of the thoughts that came to me is a lot of people speak that if uh in the church if you're excommunicated they say you lose your priesthood right and and these uh different uh, fundamentalist organizations if the one man declares you no longer have priesthood then and for them you don't but this here is telling us that even god doesn't take our priesthood away once it's given Right. The only way you lose it is by turning altogether there from. Right. Okay. And and so with that in mind, you know, it kind of gives us a 
I have a tendency to look at contradictions or at least apparent contradictions in scripture or by the, the statements of the prophets. Because a lot of times what, what I like about it is that it, it puts you in a position to do some careful reading. And by careful reading, did the scripture actually say what I thought it said? Right. Or is it not saying that? Because it, it's amazing how much we interject into what we read. And it's not nefarious. No. It's just if, if we're operating under a certain paradigm, we kind of read into things that aren't there. Sure. And, um, but anyway, um, so all this got me thinking. And then I remember and I read verse 7 again. With that in mind, what is it actually saying? Because here's my, my view. I saw contradictions to Scripture, in Scripture that way. The Section 84 tells us that uh, Moses got his uh, priesthood authority from Jethro. And that Jethro derives his authority from Isaiah. And it says there that Isaiah was ordained by God himself. Well, we do know that Isaiah was blessed of Abraham, so I don't know exactly what that means. People can interject what he gave him the priesthood, maybe. Nevertheless, though, um, it, I think it's a moot point because you have Isaiah ordaining men down to Jethro, who then, you know, ordains Moses. Right. On the other hand, you have Isaac, you have Jacob, you have, you know, the 12 tribes of Israel, but yet Moses isn't getting the fullness of priesthood from them. Right. But it seems apparent to me that they passed it down. Hmm. Like, I'm pretty sure Abraham passed it to Isaac, who passed it to Jacob. Right. Or else, why would Jacob also have the promise of a multitude? Right. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yep. Well, anyway, um, so to me, I saw a discrepancy there. Two lines of priesthood. Mm. Section 132, verse 7, seemed to be in contradiction to that. And, and then when you think of the Nephites, you have Peter, James, and John in the old world, and then you have the three Nephites here. Yeah. You know, who are completely operating um, and acting with every key power and authority. Well, it, now, just just off the top of my head, I just this just came to mind. You have Peter who's told that he has those keys now in scripture in the New right. Testament when he says, you know, when the Lord tells him whatever you seal on earth shall be sealed in heaven and and that and at the same time on uh, in the western hemisphere, you have Nephi that receives that very same promise. So there are two lines of authority operating even even during that time right so one thing that i want to point out about that is the scripture does say that peter has the presidency of it right even though he's on the other side of the world but i have to you have to say well nephi wasn't asking permission of, of peter to do anything right he had direct communion with god right and uh you're not going to believe this, but I actually had somebody tell me that that telephones replaced the uh, the spirit of God because back then uh, they <laughs> through the spirit they would get permission. <laughs> and I, I I thought to myself, are you sure you want to go with that argument? Because it sounds pretty ridiculous, you know. But anyway, um, so, and I don't really want to do a straw man here because I know that 
people who believe in one manism, there's different levels of sophistication. Right. But anyway, uh, that's what got me thinking. And so I reread section 132, verse 7. And as I read, I decided to read the whole the whole section. And one of the, uh, one of the verses that really struck out, uh, stuck out at me was verse 39. And I'd like to read that. Yeah. Um, verse 39 of 132. And let's see. If you have it ready, you can go ahead and read. Yeah, I got it here. David's wives and concubines were given unto him by the hand, hand of Nathan, my servant, and others of the prophets who had the keys of this power, and in none of these things did he sin against me, save in the case of Uriah and his wife. And therefore he hath fallen from his exaltation and received his portion, and he shall not inherit them out of the world. For I gave them unto another, saith the Lord. Right. Now the thing I want to bring your attention to is uh, if I heard you right, right, it said that David also received many wives and concubines of me by the hand of Nathan, right? Correct. And what? And others of the prophets who had, the, key, who had the keys of this power. Okay, so right there we have a scripture that denotes that there was others besides Nathan. Right. Who had the keys of this power. And it, this power is is as you're reading that whole section, it's referring to the same thing. Right. So uh, the thing, the question that naturally comes is, um, did they leave, did, did they live contemporaneous with each other or was it one after another? Well, we know they lived contemporary, contemporary, I'm sorry, I can't pronounce that word again today. They, they lived at the same time. And one of the things is we know that Nathan kind of lived throughout David's life. Mm-hmm. But it could still be argued that he commissioned others to do it. But that's not how the context reads. It says that they had the keys of this power. Right. It doesn't it doesn't specify that Nathan gave them permission to use his keys. Okay. So again, let's go back to section 132, verse 7. And what does it really say in the parenthetical? And I have appointed unto my servant Joseph to hold this power in the last days. And there is never but one on the earth at a time on whom the this power and the keys of this priesthood are conferred. Right. It doesn't say only one holds it, does it? No, I, I guess it could be in, inferred that that's what they're saying, but the word is conferred, not hold. Right. So... If we were to look at just the um, the grammar there, what it's saying that it is conferred one at a time. Oh, it's not necessarily stating that it's um, that only one per lifetime can hold it. Gotcha. So, it, so it's talking about the actual act of conferring the keys, as opposed to holding the keys. Right. Okay. Conferring. Now, to receive do you have um you wouldn't have happen to have uh, access to the wilford woodruff journal or quotes from it offhand do you not offhand no i'll i'll, I'll search it really quick um but in the uh you were saying in the wilford woodruff what? yes the the date is december 18th 1857 okay but anyway i'm going to paraphrase it because i'm having a hard time actually finding it is that I neglected to write the page number here, but no, you're good. 
it's it's basically uh, I'm going to paraphrase. He says they were in council to discuss the administration of the second anointing. Okay. And in that, uh, Wilford Woodruff says that that uh, brother George Albert Smith reminded us of instructions given by the prophet in this regard. That only one king and a priest is to be anointed at one time. That you must open with prayer and close with prayer before admitting another. And he says that thus only one will be anointed at a time, but several can be anointed in a day in a temple. Okay. Now, I'm not really suggesting that this answers the quadrant that we find in, in section 132.7, because it states clearly there that on the earth. Gotcha. That's quite a qualifier. So, but it seems that the administration of the second anointing is being typified as to whatever that this is, is talking about. Okay, before because... before we go on from here, there's there's going to be some in the audience who aren't familiar with what the second anointing is. And obviously we don't want to get into the ordinance itself, but give just a real cursory view of what, what the second anointing is. Uh, the second anointing is the basically the highest ordinance that a man um, can perform on another or the capstone uh, it would be the capstone uh, ordinance that one can achieve in, from another mortal okay and and in that is is that where these these keys are this keys and power of the priesthood that's being referred to in seven is is the second anointing where those keys are passed along yes the second anointing um, has a couple of synonyms that it's known by Okay. It's referred to as the second anointing, which if you've been uh, if you've been endowed in the in the temple, you, you receive an anointing. That's referred to as your first anointing. The second anointing is supposed to be one that happens afterward. Gotcha. And um, they also refer to it as being anointed a king and a priest unto the Most High God. And for the sisters is to be a uh, a queen and a priestess unto her husband. Gotcha. And. Um, it's an ordinance that that you really can't receive unless you have one wife that's in harmony with you, and um, because it requires, you know, her her, uh, her participation to complete the ordinance. Gotcha. Um, and the other thing that's also referred to is is the second endowment. Uh, okay. All right. And oh, one more word. And this Joseph Smith used coined this this term. He referred to it as. Um, receiving the fullness of the priesthood and the other one that was referred to as being sealed by the holy spirit of promise okay all right I so just it's pretty to... important <laughs> yeah pretty yeah heavy heavy stuff for sure so yeah i just wanted to clear that up because i think that factors in heavily into into this so so when what what back to the wilford woodruff journal he's basically saying um that you every this is not a group ordinance right i mean some ordinances are if we look at at the endowment certainly that can be done mm -hmm. in groups um right this one has to be done the second anointing one at a time right and so we're we're thinking here that this is what seven could say in conjunction with some historical evidence from Wilford Woodruff, where it talks about opening uh, the meeting with prayer and closing the meeting with prayer, and only one couple, if you will, goes through at a time to receive this. Right. 
And okay. I'd like to point I'd like to point out that in that ordinance, men and women are considered one. So when you say one man, it includes the man and his wives. Just like we look at wives. like an Elohim unit, so to speak. Right. Gotcha. And and it's and it's you know it, it just goes along with what the apostle Paul says that the man is neither without the woman or the woman without the man and the Lord. Sure. Sure. Okay. So you were gonna you were gonna say okay let's let's look at the term on the earth at a time because you were saying that's a right. heavy qualifier. Right. Well, um, years ago, a friend of mine and I were um, doing a study of this topic together, and um, he actually put it forth in a in a pamphlet. Um, he no longer shares, you know, a lot of the views that he put there. I, uh, but I think what he did was 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 uh, greatly inspired. But we have that disagreement between us now, <laughs> but back then we didn't. Gotcha. Um, but one of the things that um, that was that was the crutch is so what does it mean on the earth? What are we talking about here? And um, he called me up and he says, I think I have the answer. And I says, really? What you, and he says, um, read verse five and one thirty two. OK, and I'll go ahead and uh, go ahead and read it since you apparently yeah. have it right before you. Yep. For all who will have a blessing at my hands shall abide the law which was appointed for that blessing and the conditions thereof as were instituted from before the foundations of the world. Okay. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. It's saying for, if you will have a blessing at my hands, you must abide the law upon which that blessing is, is predicated as were, you know, um, as was instituted from before the foundation of the world. Then it goes on to say in the conditions of this law are these in verse seven. Okay. So you should read verse 7 with verse 5 in mind. Okay. Now, here's the the, um, the way I understand it now. I didn't understand it, you know, when I first read it, but immediately when I read that, that light bulb went off in my head. And I says, don't tell me what, what you think it means. I want to see if my inspiration equals yours. Because right. I like the law of witnesses. It's for whoso will receive a blessing at my hands. Most people look at that metaphorically, like any blessing you get from God is you know, under the hands of God. But when you read it in context, it seems to be talking about that literally. Okay. And it says, so who will be blessed at my hands must live this law, and here are the conditions. Oh. And it goes on to say, for there is never but one on the earth at a time on whom this power and the keys of this priesthood are conferred. Right. So, um, so that takes me to my next line of reasoning. What does it mean? What does the keys and power of the priesthood mean? Now, a key, any simple definition is that which gives you access uh, to which others are uh, barred from. Right. Or or not entitled to access. It can be a key to a house. It could be a key to a safe. But keys aren't always just a physical object that you insert into a lock and open it. Right. It could be knowing the combination to a lock, knowing the key to be able to um, open or have access to a particular whatever it may be. Right. So by its very nature, the keys 
are there to give you access to something. Right. So then does that necessarily mean that keys and power are synonymous terms? Not necessarily. Right. Now, I think you can use the word power, you know, quite generally. But I think in this respect, it's being, it's being very specific. Right. So now, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. I was going to say, in, in this instant, would it would it be speaking of keys as being authorized to do something and the power of it may, might be more dependent upon the man's worthiness? I would say so. Okay. And but that almost seems too simplistic in a way <laughs> to, to right. state it that way. Um, because uh, authorized by whom, you know, is the next question. Right. Now, to the proponents of one manism, they believe the authorization comes from the one man, if you're not the one man. And of course, the one man gets it from God. But um, I believe that it's a little bit more, um, what's the word? There's a greater dispensation than that. Okay. One of the things that I think kind of goes hand in hand with this this line of thinking is that we seem to believe as Mormons, and rightly so, that Joseph Smith taught that we may become as God, right? Right. That we may become gods ourselves, and that there's a plurality of gods. Uh, Judeo-Christianity, for the most part, they believe there's only one God. And they, they believe that kind of stuff because you hear terms like, you know, besides me, there is no savior. Um, I am the way. There is no other way that gets you there. And those are all true. But I think we, we have a tendency to over to over-disperse these ideas and concepts onto everything. Okay. You know, uh, as it says in the Book of Mormon that the Gentiles will say, a Bible, a Bible, we have got a Bible, need no more Bible. Right. Well, in Mormonism today, I think we can say a prophet, a prophet, we have got a prophet, and we need no more prophet. Mm. But scripturally, when has this ever really been true? I don't think it has. I, I, I mean, honestly, in thinking back... I mean, maybe you can, well, no, I don't think you can make the case in Moses' time because obviously Jethro held the keys. And it's my understanding that once you receive the 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 the, the second anointing and the keys, you become a prophet and apostle. So obviously Jethro was alive during Moses' um, ministry. I can't think of one off the top of my head. I, I think you could maybe make the case at, early on in the restoration with Joseph before he rolls the kingdom off to the, the 12, but I, yeah, I, I can't think of any. Well, I'll, there, I'll say that there were in the uh, sample that you brought up with Joseph Smith, I would say that him, that it's true that for a time he was the one man. Right. But I believe that was circumstantial not principle. Okay. Meaning he was the one man because for a while he hadn't passed it on to anyone else. Right. And we have the testimony of the 12 and among others that he passed on every key power and authority to them individually. Right. And this we have ample record of from, from various, um, from various brethren. You have Wilford Woodruff saying it. You have Brigham Young saying it. You have John Taylor saying it. You have others saying it. Okay. And, and, I'm, you know, I, I know that this is meant with, uh, yeah, but they, you know, they may hold the keys and they have them in common, you know, and but only one guy can exercise the keys. Hmm. And the others kind of have it in limbo in a way. 
until you know one passes away so there's that there's that uh, variation on it and uh, so uh i by understanding it that way most people would think that the um most people would think that the uh, great apostasy took place by them rejecting the one man but that's not how isaiah for foresaw the great apostasy is that's not how parley p pratt or joseph smith or any uh, uh, or any of them spoke of the great apostasy they spoke of the great apostasy of, as have broken the new and everlasting covenant and as changing the ordinances. Okay. That's the uh, qualifier they use for apostasy. Now, Interesting. I dare say that a belief in one manism almost facilitates apostasy. And how so? Well, if you have a one man that begins to uh, state things that aren't scripturally sound or sound in relation to the previous prophets you dare not question him because you're going against the one man right so these changes begin to happen based on the fact that well he's the one guy he can do it okay and so, so that's, uh, that's one of the pitfalls of the one man is that now you can can basically just change everything car blanc right Right. Now, that's oversimplifying it in a way because I don't think that they do it so brazenly. At sometimes they do, but more often than not, they're a little bit more subtle about it. Okay. And sometimes I even wonder if they're even all that um, aware that they're doing it. Gotcha. But nevertheless, it shuts down the ability to protest th this type of change within those given organizations. Right. Because questioning... Uh, questioning them becomes uh, uh, becomes synonymous with accusing the brethren and being on the high road of apostasy. Yeah, well, no, that's that's a good point. And and to back that up, I think I think even if we look at well, let me back up here a little bit. Let me put this into to full context here. What was the original war in heaven all about? It was about, it, it could be summed up really simply, can man govern himself and still return back to the presence of God? That's what the argument was about. Right. The, 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 the council up there came to the conclusion, no man can, and you had the adversary who said he, he can't. Uh, the adversary said, you're going to need a strong man over him to enforce them back into the kingdom. Likewise, if we look at at the the we'll just look at the Constitution, right? Mm -hmm. um, it was done in such a way that man's rights were protected and and the Constitution was set up to be about principle, not men. It doesn't make sense, at least from my point of view, um, that the Lord is this concerned about agency that he this is what the war in heaven's about in forming a country where the gospel could could flourish he sets up a form of government that's built on principle rather than men but in his gospel if 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 this one man thing holds water he does the exact opposite he says no this will be all about the man and not about the principle would that be a fair way of looking at that yeah uh but i would dare say that uh the, the proponents of it don't see themselves in that light. I don't think they uh, they truly see it that way. I think most of them have um, 
I think most of them actually believe they're being benevolent. And and you you do have terms like benevolent dictatorships or whatever like that. And at times that's actually true. You have people that are nice dictators. Right. And uh, but I, I believe that the principle is wrong. And it's only a matter of time before you get a tyrant. Right. And uh, I think one of the things that's kept the LDS church from having too much of that is the fact that they have a public face that they have to uphold. Gotcha. So that kind of keeps a um, magnifying glass on them a little bit and and keeps them to a certain extent within certain limits. But in other cases where uh, in other cases where that hasn't been the issue or they haven't concerned themselves with public opinion, but actually shied away from public opinion altogether, then you do have cases like uh, Erva LeBaron and his followers where they, you know, believe some pretty extreme stuff. And uh, I, I don't really want to get too much into uh, criticizing sure. other branches of Mormonism, because I don't think it's necessary to do that. I think we can speak principle and people can judge for themselves where they're at. Sure. Sure. But no. anyway, but we historically, we know that there can be uh, great excesses. Right. So, yeah. So back to where we were, it, it sounds like that there's, almost always with the exception of of the early restoration that there's always been more than one person on the earth at a time holding those keys mm -hmm. well i'm not going to say always you know there's there's been I, th I think you can make the case that occasionally the keys were reduced down to one man okay you know because others were killed or others you know either apostatized or fell away and maybe one guy was left, but that's not a principle. That's a circumstance. Okay. And, you know, if, um, and, and quite frankly, the men who have this, um, this uh, given to them, they're also given a charge to perpetuate that which they have received. And in doing so, you would think that, you know, they would at least be looking for candidates uh, to whom they can uh, pass this on. But to do it righteously, they should be asking the Lord. Right. You know, whom shall I bless with this? Now, this issue of of, of uh, the keys and everything has become such a triggering point that some have taught that to even ask about them or ask for them proves that you're unworthy because you're seeking self-aggrandizement. Well, this this can't be supported scripturally, and it can't be supported even historically. Because we're told, asking you shall receive, knocking it shall be opened. And we're told specifically, and, ha and, and having God in our lives. And I'm not just talking about, you know, having religion in our lives. We're invited to, uh, have, to uh, abide with God. And so, Joseph Smith went on that very suggestion. If you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth to all men liberally, but let them ask it in faith. Right. And it says he giveth liberally and abradeth not. So, I mean, it's at the very core of what it is to to be a follower of Christ. Right. Yeah, we we're, we're invited. That's 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 one of the main invitations of Mormonism is to receive everything that the father has to give. Um, and if if we're not seeking after those things, then 
then what are we really doing? Are we content right. just to, or are we content just to be the backup quarterback, so to speak? Right. Or, or should we be looking for something more? Now let's go to section 128 and okay. let's go to verse nine through 11. Okay. All right. Do you want me to read that again? Let me read this one. Okay. And you'll just have to bear with me. I'm a little slow in pulling it no, up. No, you're good. You're good. And the reason being is I, I kind of would like to add some emphasis in key areas. Sure. So that I can uh, manipulate everybody into believing as I do. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I say that jokingly. I hope you know that. But it says, it may seem to some to be a very bold doctrine that we talk of, a power which records or binds on earth and binds in heaven. Nevertheless, in all ages of the world, whenever the Lord has given a dispensation of the priesthood to any man by actual revelation or any set of men, mm. notice that? Yep. Or any set of men, this power has always been given. Hence, whatsoever those men did in authority in the name of the Lord and did it truly and faithfully and kept a proper and faithful record of the same, it became a law on earth and in heaven and could not be annulled according to the decrees of the great Jehovah. This is a faithful saying who can hear it. And again, for the precedent, Matthew 16, verses 18 and 19, And I say unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, 11, is this is where it really nails it. Now, the great and grand secret of the whole matter and the sonum bonum of the whole subject that is lying before us consists in obtaining the powers of the holy priesthood. For him to whom these keys are given, there is no difficulty in obtaining a knowledge of facts in relation to the salvation of the children of men, both as well for the dead as for the living. Here in his glory and honor and immortality and eternal life, the ordinance of baptism by water to be immersed, therein in order to answer to the likeness of the dead, that one principle might accord with the other, to be immersed in the water and come forth out of the water is in the likeness of the resurrection of the dead and coming forth out of their graves. But anyway, notice how here it says that the son and bonum and the subject of the whole matter is lies in obtaining. Right. Right. And and it, it's almost a commission that these keys that 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 within the priesthood, we should be be looking to obtain these keys. Correct. Correct. Which if if that's what we're we're if that's what the the emphasis is there to uh, obtain those keys. One manism can't really be a thing within this context. Right. Now, I do want to say something in regards to order within the kingdom of God, whether it be the church kingdom or priesthood or however you want to uh, frame any quorum. Um, I do believe in order. I do believe there should be uh, someone who presides in the various quorums. But what I contend is what the nature of that presidency uh, is. In other words, I differentiate between the keys generally and having the right to preside. Yeah. In other words, um, you know, if we have a, a quorum of elders, not all of them can preside at the same time in that quorum without there being confusion. 
Right. Uh, one way, you know, one way to exemplify this is, let's say I'm in an elders quorum and I visit a widow. Let's say I'm I'm doing my home teaching, and I'm visiting a widow, and I realize that she has a leaky roof and it's in really bad shape. I don't have the authority to speak on behalf of the quorum, saying we'll be here on X, uh, we'll be here at, at such and such time. Right. I have to first talk to the president of the quorum. And it's not because he has any authority above mine, but he's been vested with the ability to represent the whole quorum. Gotcha. To speak on our behalf and, and to do business on our behalf. So now I come to him and say, this widow needs a roof. Well, he has the ability to see where the quorum's already allotted. Right. Where the quorum's already spending its time on it. And so he knows where the... Um, where the vacant times are, where he can assign it. Gotcha. That's that's not him exercising authority over me. It's just maintaining order. Right. And in our meetings, he presiding in the meeting means he maintains the order of the meeting. Right. By, you know, uh, giving time and a... So people speak in turn rather than out of turn. Right. Yeah, and and I agree with you totally. I had an episode on here with uh, Michael Ness early late last year about the difference between priesthood and presiding, and right. and broke this broke this down. And I I agree with you you totally, and and I think at least this is how it works in my simple mind. I looked at at presiding as more of of the guy who kind of sets the agenda a little bit or sets. Right sets the the direction in that time um not necessarily he has any more authority than anybody else right that that wouldn't make right. sense either uh you use the the analogy of an elders quorum well if you're all elders nobody has any more keys or or priesthood authority than the president does right the president holds the same priesthood as as the rest of, the rest of his quorum so He's simply there to help set the agenda. Correct. And so, and, um, you know, others, others can bring in, uh, others can bring in uh, things to consider during that meeting. And so the man, the man presiding is, he has, he has to be aware of the amount of time allotted they have. He has to try to balance pro and con arguments, pro and con on, on, on any given subject. And, uh, make sure that there's no one speaking over someone over the top of someone else. And so it's just basically maintaining order. In other words, he has the gavel like a judge does in a courtroom. Now they even say the honorable so-and-so presiding. And in most cases, the judge listens to a case more than interjects. Uh, You'll have the prosecuting or the defense attorneys saying stuff like I object, give the reasons for their objection. And, the judge says either overruled or sustained based on the rules of, of engagement. And, uh, and so, but in the end, you know, sometimes the judge does, you know, give a, a judgment at the end, but in, 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 in more ideal cases, you have a jury and the jury is neither the judge presiding nor the, but they are there as the judges that, that watch this whole uh, thing play out. Gotcha. And, um, but anyway, so I'm not one who thinks that, I'm not one who thinks that everybody should just be doing their own thing. We should actually all be engaged in doing the work of God. Right. But we have to also understand what that is. 
So it lays the responsibility on us to know for ourselves what the word of God consists of. And then to see who is uh, aligning himself to those principles more. Then we also have to realize and find out, is there a line of authority that comes down to this individual? And um, I kind of rather like the free market of ideas, the free market of goods and services, but also the free market in priesthood. Because as an individual, you can then judge who are these guys who may or may not have the authority as acting within mm -hmm. uh, the realm of what I've studied to be the kingdom of God. And, uh, you know, Frederick Bastian, and this kind of ties in the political and economic and, and religious freedom kind of all in one. Frederick Bastiat wrote a book called The Law, but in it he wrote, this principle can be used in various, uh, various fields. In the field of religion, he said, how do you know whether uh, a pastor is a true pastor of God or a priest? He says, ask yourself the question, does the pastor serve his flock or does the flock serve him? <laughs> he actually says that he used the, he, he used said the that yes he said that and he also <laughs> said he also said does does the the priest or pastor serve his faith or does the faith serve him Interesting. and he says and you may usually come you know from that simple question you may know whether you have a true shepherd or a wolf in sheep's clothing gotcha interesting yeah and and that's one of the things that, especially with my boys, I tried to drive home as I passed priesthood on to them, was this idea of, look, this isn't just a badge of honor for you to, to wear and say, look at how righteous I am. This is a commission to serve, right? You, you right. receive any of these things from, from, the, from the deacon on up to someone who's received their second anointing. This is this is a commission to serve, and the level of service goes up as you progress through these these priesthood offices. Um, and so I like I like what you brought out there that is is he is this man serving or is he looking to be served by having this authority? Now, of course, sometimes it takes a little bit more discernment than simply asking that question because I don't know of too many um, imposters out there that are going to be that open about the people serving them but as you as you see their policies as you see you know how they uh the rhetoric that they use this episode of the podcast is brought to you by deseretflag.com i've said this before and i really mean it mormonism isn't just a religion it's a culture as such it has its own vernacular and practices but also its own symbols and those symbols become even more important and prominent when you look back into our history Perhaps one of the most recognizable symbols of Mormonism is the Deseret flag. This is the flag that I use as cover art in this podcast. This was also used for a good chunk of time during the pioneer era in Utah. Now, today we have people who want to replace the existing Utah flag with some other progressive monstrosity. Well, I think it's damn past time that we start pushing back here a little bit in Utah. Our friends at Defending Utah are here to help you with that. Now, if you go to DeseretFlag.com, you can now purchase your own Deseret State flag. It's time here that we start making ourselves known and join the resistance against those who seek to rewrite our state's history. Go to DeseretFlag.com 
or check out the link in this episode's page show notes and get yours today. Can't get enough of the Mormon Renegade podcast? Well, good news. We're on Patreon, and there's three packages that you can choose from. The first one, the Slightly Rowdy Package, allows you to hear the podcast without all those pesky commercials getting in the way. For those who want a slightly more in-depth experience, there's the Stirring It Up Package, where you can hear ad-free audio, ad-free video, and transcripts. Finally, for those who want to go full Renegade, that package is available too, where you can get everything in the previous two packages, plus an extra show where myself and Ben Winfield break down the news of the day from a very Mormon point of view. You will also get exclusive access to Renegade Chat, and on there you'll be able to talk to others about the show or whatever topics are on your mind. Go to Patreon today and get your exclusive content. You can kind of discern it fairly quickly whether the people are there to serve him or he's there to serve the people. Right. And it's going to become kind of apparent if you're if you if you go into it with your eyes open. Right. Now, it's been said before, um but uh, this statement I love it. It says that he who will not reason is a bigot, he who cannot reason is a fool, and he who dare not reason is a slave. <laughs> and I think we can all think of examples in our lives where we've met someone in, in all three of those categories. But I, I I dare say that the majority of people fall under the third category. Right. Most people are intelligent. And most people are, you know, w- willing to consider things. But where they dare not, meaning they don't dare question authority in any degree, especially authority that they have great respect for then at that point, they're not necessarily giving the support to those people that they should, but they're more sycophants. And they dare not reason if if they feel that that reasoning is going to take them somewhere that doesn't agree with them. And I'm not saying that, and that I think people can be wrong, um, right and wrong at the same time. Just because you question someone doesn't mean you're going to throw them under the bus. Right. But quite frankly, if you take that attitude and you do support someone, I think you'll be a greater support to them. Because you'll be able to tell them, watch out for these pitfalls. Yeah. You'll be in a position to sustain them from a greater, uh, from a position of strength rather than one of weakness. This is one of the, well, this is one of the things that made the U.S. military so successful is that commanding officers generally taught their job to the rank below them right so if anything was to happen to them the chain of command would remain right and a lot of these other like let's talk about the the iraqi republican republican guard for instance they were kind of an elite group but they had a very uh tiered line of authority and there was no fraternizing at all between officers and enlisted men and so forth it was it was kind of like a nobility thing, nobility yeah. and peasants. So, yeah, you kill off an officer, the army doesn't know what to do. Gotcha. So it actually shoots itself in the foot. Right. And by sharing in authority and by sharing and delegating, uh, the American military became extremely powerful. Right. Because you was could always... kill off officers and you still had people competent enough to lead. Right. 
Okay, interesting. And and yeah, going back now, and, and that makes me go back to what what those early brethren brethren's idea was about the apostasy, right? It wasn't simply killing off the appointed servants. It, it was more a turning away of the ordinances and changing some stuff. Right. The apostasy, not necessarily killing them off because theoretically there, there could have been enough men in there to, to perpetuate that with the 12. That's, that's okay. That's fascinating. That's well, good not story. only that, but if you look at uh, Catholic uh, claim to authority in modern times, they'll show you a line of ordination all the way back to Peter. Right. Yeah. So if we're going to believe, so if, from my standpoint, and this might be oversimplified and to some people probably a straw man, but I think uh, that simplicity is actually quite, um, uh, quite uh, deep in a way. Yeah. Because if we are to believe the one man doctrine is an envi- uh, a doctrine to, to be held inviolate, then why aren't we Catholic? Because they can, they can actually state that the, the the keys were handed to Peter by the Lord himself and and that those were handed on through what they call apostolic succession. Yeah. Yeah. No, you, you asked a good question. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, yeah. I, I suppose if you were going to hold, hold to that, that one man doctrine being inviolate, that, that the guy who has the keys can never lead you astray. Yeah. I mean, well, obviously one of those guys somewhere along the line did lead us astray. Or we wouldn't have a necessity for a restoration. Well, and I think the same argument could be applied to to Mormon fundamentalism. Correct. If mm-hmm. if the one guy can never lead you astray, then none of us should be living fundamentalist principles at this point, right? Because the one man said, "No, no, those you don't need to worry about those anymore." Uh, you know, I kind of know how they get around that. And, you know, they say that, you know, yeah, Wilford Woodruff made some st- statements, but secretly he he made provisions for it to continue. And that John Taylor, you know, ordained these gentlemen at the eight-hour meeting. And apparently they were kind of held them in limbo until the church gave them up, and then they sprung up and started. Uh, historically, there's a lot of issues with that interpretation of the events. Um, from what I've been able to read in the history of those events is that John Taylor set Ben apart to keep the principle alive mm-hmm. because some of the men that he called to do that already had the fullness men like George Q. Cannon and, um, uh, what's his name? Um, L. John Nuttall. Okay. Those men already had some of the, some of this stuff. And so I don't think it was uh, an issue of handing over keys per se. Right. It was a charge to keep these things alive to some men that had the keys and to those who didn't have the keys, a charge to obtain them. Now, we have record that uh, John Woolley was given the second anointing not too long afterwards. Okay. But, you know, considering some of the um, I'm thinking of a letter that John Taylor wrote to stake presidents across the church saying that they've been negligent in uh, seeking out and recommending people for the second anointing. And he says, uh, we encourage you to actively seek out uh, brethren within your stakes that would qualify and bring them to us for consideration, recommend them for consideration. And he says, as presidents, uh, as, as stake presidents, we presume you have yours. 
Mm. If you do not rectify this at your earliest convenience or as soon as possible, kind of. So yeah. with that in mind, uh, there's quite a few people with the keys. Right. And uh, when John Taylor was uh, was uh, subpoenaed to to take the witness stand in the Rudger Clausen trial, he was asked if the authority came from him, you know, to effect plural marriages within the church, and he said he did. And he says, so how is it, if you're not directly uh, directing them, how is it happening? And and he made a statement that there are hundreds who've been given the authority to perpetuate, a plural, uh, to perform a plural marriage. And he was asked, would you be so kind as to give us a list? And he said, no, I would not be so kind. And he went on to say that I make it my business not to know. Oh, interesting. So I don't know how John Taylor actually stood on the one man issue. It seems to me like the early brethren kind of bought into that idea early on. I mean, this is kind of evidenced by the fact that Orson, High, Orson Pratt, um, the same day that uh, the revelation of plural marriage was brought to, before the people, he made a statement to that effect. And uh, later on, I think I read it in uh, Fred Collier's Unpublished Revelations. He he had a, a resolution uh, where the brethren there resolved that only one man can hold the keys. I thought it was interesting that he put it under uh, Unpublished Revelations when that particular thing's not a revelation at all. It yeah. says we resolved. It was a vote. Right. And um, so I'm I'm not debating the idea that some of the early brethren, or even a good deal of them, uh, believe this way because i don't believe that you know the church just all one day had this situation and that mormon fundamentalists just followed suit i think the i think the roots uh, for, of that were actually established pretty early on but the one thing that i say is the revelation of 1880 argues against one manism and as you know the revelation of 1880 was was uh revealed to wilford woodruff when he was in sunset arizona and he was asking about the political conditions of the church at the time. What are they to do? You know, he's he was pretty humbled and asking, you know, we're kind of, the situation is pretty hard. Well, you know, how, how do we deal with this? And, and it's interesting that the Lord says, ask them the question if they, if, if, uh, if they didn't have the apostleship, which is the greatest authority given to men on earth. The Lord answers for them and says, yes, each and every one of you, you hold the keys in common. And it's and then it goes on to say that if any one of you receive revelation on behalf of my church and kingdom, you are to present it in your councils. And I think that's interesting because it's plural councils. Right. You're presented in your councils, and if they, by common consent, deem it wise to uh, to give it to the people, then let my servant John your let my it says let my servant. Your president, John Taylor, be voice to the people, for this is the order of the the church and kingdom of God in the, in every generation. But what I took away from that, and it goes on to say, for all the burden should not be upon one man. And so what I took away from that was that the Lord was correcting the brethren, because mm. when you read it, it is given in the spirit of correction. Or what's the point of being that specific about it? Right. If they already knew. Right. He makes a special point in telling them, for all the burden should not be on one man. And it goes on to say, this way you may uh, uphold him, or those who are called to preside. Right. So um, 
so yeah, I, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not going to be disingenuous and say that this is something that came up later on or whatever. No, it's, it's pretty early on. But the one thing I, I never re really have read is from Joseph Smith, where he, as a matter of fact, he seems to give an awful lot of things that seem to counter the one manism. There is one um, entry in the Joseph Smith Journal that speaks of him being the only man and or saying i'm i'm the one who holds the keys and there's never but one on the earth on whom this is conferred and i've always said that a man should have but one wife unless the lord directs otherwise well for the sake of argument i i do have a question on that particular entry because there is evidence that there was some um interjection that wasn't there originally but i can't make that charge and say that that's actually the case it's just it's open to that probability but even for the sake of argument, even if I was to accept it as as completely historical, the wording is still the same as it is in section 132, that it is conferred upon them one at a time. And then the fact that he equates that with, I have said that men are to have but one wife unless the Lord directs otherwise, you can almost tie that into the, wow. man, who, the man who holds the keys. Right. That, you know, there, it's only one at, at a time on the earth. You know, I'm the one who has it. And when he made that statement, I wonder if he was the only man still. Right. So um, I, um, maybe some of the historians out there might be able to pinpoint the date that when he said that, as opposed to the date when uh, he began to um, uh, ordain others or anoint others as kings and priests. Well, and and yeah, that would, that would be a, I'll have to take a look at that, but yeah, because as we alluded to before, there was a point at which Joseph was the only guy that held it. Right. And then he gave it to Hiram, I think, first. And then from there, during Joseph's last charge, if you will, he at, at some point there, he he rolls all of those keys back onto the quorum of the twelve. Right. And so yeah, no, he <laughs> that's that's a good way of look of looking at that too, is at that point, he could have been the only guy that held up. Well, I just want to make a, a certain uh, statement here. Um, section 124 um, is based on a revelation that was received on January 19th, 1841. And this is the one that 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 says that the, the keys, even the, those of the Holy Spirit of promise, were to be given to Hiram Smith. 124, uh, if you read verses... Uh, 92 through 95, it gives you the nature of those keys, which, which is the same ones that we've been talking about with Peter, James, and John and others, you know, being able to record in, on earth to be recorded in heaven or bind on earth to be bound in heaven and so forth. And 124, verse 124 goes on to say that Hiram is to be patriarch, to have the sealing keys of my church, even the Holy Spirit of promise. Hmm. So it's there stating that Hiram is to have these. And we do have an instance where Joseph gets after Hiram because he performed a plural marriage. Right. And Joseph was, um, came down on him pretty hard over that. But the thing I, I would like to bring to note is there's a difference between a revelation saying you are to be given the keys and actually receiving the keys. Gotcha. Now, as a note, it's uh, stated in uh, Joseph Smith's journal on, under September 28th, 1843, it states that uh, Baruch Ale was anointed a king and a priest along with his wife, queen and priestess. 
and in that was sustained as president of that society by the common consent of its members. Well, I don't know uh, uh, the semantics of how Joseph received everything because there's their statements in uh, 132 verses 45 and 46 where the Lord says, I gave this to Joseph, Joseph you know, like stating he personally gave it to him. But it seems to indicate to me that Hiram probably wasn't anointed till around that time, at least. Okay. So when... Joseph is being... Joseph is being anointed here in September 28th, 1843, because we know that he's Baruch Gale, sp spoken of in that right. in that instance. And so, and then when you have section 124 is revealed in 1841, there was a lapse of time between the revelation of uh, Hiram having received these, uh, uh, revelation saying that Hiram is to receive these keys from the time he actually received them. And it's possible that Hiram, misunderstanding the revelation, acted on it. I understand. Okay, so Hiram's uh, in 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 one twenty four. Right. Hiram is promised that at some point he'll receive those keys, which right. again was in in uh, October. <clears throat> excuse me. Looks like October January, 20. January January nineteenth, eighteen forty one. Okay, all right, and we don't have. Joseph receiving it actually until 1843, right? Yeah, I I have to say, uh, make a special note there. It's one thing that's interesting is uh, the brethren that received these under the hand of Joseph Smith, when they built the temple in Nauvoo, they repeated the ordinance. Okay, and I think you know I'm just uh, I'm just speculating here, but I think they did it so that it's done in more proper order. Gotcha. And it's possible that Joseph had it redone by a human hand. After it's possible he gave it to someone else first, and then they did it to him. Gotcha, gotcha. Much like what happened down in, in at, at the Susquehanna River with, right. with the, the the baptisms with him and Oliver Cowdery. Right. Okay. Now, if we if we read sec section one twenty four, verse one twenty four, it's um, my memory is a little fuzzy, but I think if I remember correctly. I'm going to make a point with it. Okay. It says, first, I give unto you, Hiram Smith, to be a patriarch unto you, to hold the sealing blessings of my church, even the Holy Spirit of promise, whereby you are sealed up unto the day of redemption, that ye may not fall, notwithstanding the hour of temptation that may come upon you. Notice here it says to be. Right. And then to hold. So it's speaking in a future tense. Right. I mean, it could have happened immediately thereafter but uh judge judging by the historical record i don't think so gotcha because as we know hiram was opposed to the principle until he was converted okay all and, right uh, and a lot of what we're talking about is actually revolves around section 120 uh, 130 132 quite a bit right now if this is the case so often we look at 132 as simply being about ceilings or plural marriages or those sorts of things but given the context we've looked at this in this could be an a a uh not just about that but also about receiving keys and and understanding authority and and power of the priesthood as well right right interesting which should really change because i could kind of get how people could have read that in there then if they're not understanding fully the context of what they're reading about, right? Because right. in 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 from an LDS perspective, and I'd say even from in in 
in fundamentalism if you're kind of brought up about it and you know you keep going back to 132 to talk about ceilings or about plural marriage you just make the assumption that's what it's all about but i guess an honest reading of it or or a more nuanced reading of it might point out that the lord could be talking about something else in conjunction with all of these things because he's talking to you about yeah, if you want to be sealed, if you want to live plural marriage and have those be eternal, you have to first understand keys and authority. Right. And, you know, to to piggyback on what you just said, at the very beginning, it says, you know, verily I saith the Lord unto you, my servant Joseph, inasmuch as you have inquired of me to know wherein I justified my servants, Abraham, you know, and it, it says, I will answer thee pertaining to this matter. It's It's not just... Notice how the purpose isn't to say, I'm going to reveal to you plural marriage, but why I justified my servants in it. Right. And so the Lord unpacks it as this is much bigger than just marriage. Right. It's marriage as it relates to authority. Gotcha. And it's basically really, I think a lot of people underestimate how much is really packaged in that section. Gotcha. But if you take that section, cross-reference it with section 84, it's going to give you a much deeper understanding of what it's talking about. Interesting. Like, like I already showed you how, uh, you know, verse 26 uh, really fits the, um, the mold of what is referred to as the oath and covenant that which belongeth to the priesthood in what? section 84. See, this to me is another indicator that uh, Joseph Smith was a true prophet because you have this consistency throughout the scriptures. Uh, you have this idea in section 132 that's more fully developed from what is revealed in section 84. And section 84 is really giving you an outline of what you'll eventually find in section 132. Right. And... Uh, there's uh there's just all kinds of things when you begin to look into it from that that angle i believe the scriptures just open up in a it's a floodgate that yeah. opens up and overwhelms you almost yeah and and here's here's the other thing right is th this idea of only one guy having it at a time well you then have to start answering some questions, right? If you're going to hold to this idea of, of it can only be one guy who holds these keys, which is when he ordains somebody else to receive it, because we know all the apostles, right? And I'm speaking in, in the traditional um, framework of the hierarchy that we would be familiar with within uh, the LDS church or other fundamentalist uh, groups, is you have your first presidency, you have your quorum of the 12, your 70s. And it's my understanding that when Joseph gave his last charge, he also performed seconds for, for the 12, okay? So if the 12 have all the same keys, well, then this idea of ha only one man at a time doesn't hold water at all. Because at that yeah. point, you would have to say, okay, then then it, it becomes confusion. Unless you have, and, and we alluded to this early on, Sean, we alluded to there's a difference between presiding, 
to have order and then authority and he's in power within the priesthood. Well, that brings me to my next point. Now, in saying this, I'm not going to be um, authoritative with it. I'm just going to show you my own mindset. Okay. And in saying that, you know, I, I, um, I'm just being honest. I believe that someone who holds the priesthood can at any time when inspired to pass that priesthood on to anyone that qualifies within or without any church and or priesthood organization. I don't believe they have to give their go-ahead to make it valid. However, it would be out of order for him to induct him as a member of any organized quorum without first uh, uh, without the, that quorum having a say so. Gotcha. So basically it's like, um, let me put it this way. It's like uh, delivering the keys to the priesthood is like giving you the knowledge to be a doctor. You now have a diploma. You now have the keys that enable you to fill a position as a as a doctor. But that doesn't mean you can go into any hospital and start practicing. Right. You have to be hired on. You have to be approved by their board. But you have the keys that qualify you to act in any hospital. Or you can start your own clinic. Right. And the point here becomes is the quality of your medicine and of your knowledge now becomes the... Um, the premise upon which people will choose to come to you or not. Gotcha. Okay. So with that in mind, let me ask this question. Cause we know Joseph did give this authority to other men. Do we have any um, indication if, if any priesthood doctor, so to speak, to stay with that analogy, went and started their own clinic? Um, well, yeah, <laughs> we have Lyman white, right? That's, um, that's that's a good point. And Brigham, it doesn't sound like Brigham ever ever really said that Lyman White was doing anything out of order. He just wanted him to bring his followers up with the rest of the body of the saints, correct? Correct. If I'm not mistaken, I may be conflating things here. Okay. Because I don't have it at, at, at hand right now, but I remember reading that there was, and I think if I recall where I read it, it's probably in um, Mysteries of Godliness but by David Berger. But don't hold me to that. Okay. But there was a dialogue between, I believe it was Lyman White, or it could have been Alpheus Cutler, or another guy by the last name of Carter. Okay. Where one says, one, one says to Brigham, I have, I have every authority to bear off the kingdom. Anywhere on the earth. And the answer to him from Brigham was actually pretty interesting because he said, yes, you do. And there are others who can make that claim. But we have the presidency of it. And the Lord does not want us to be divided. Something to that effect. Hmm. And um, so when I saw that, I was like, that was a real interesting take. I, I found it interesting that Brigham said, no, you don't. He didn't say that. Right. Now. I want to read something to you uh, regarding uh, 
it's a statement by William Smith. And I know that he's not held in high regard amongst uh, the Brighamite branch of the of the church. But I think his statements are still pretty uh, germane to the subject here because he actually echoes what some of the 12 said about the last charge. Now, let's see, page 12, okay. Now, William Smith, uh, in a letter to the Warsaw Signal, said, now the date of this is January 7th, 1846. So it's it's fairly close to you know the time of the last charge. It's only like a couple of years removed. Says, I received my initiation into the highest priesthood lodge, was washed and anointed, and clad with sacerdotal robe of pure white, and ordained to be a priest and a king, and invested with all the power that any man on earth ever did possess. I hold as much power and as many keys to seal and bind on earth as can possibly belong to Brigham Young. The power was conferred equally on all the twelve and not therefore bestowed on one. Hmm. Well, yeah, and, and even if you don't like him, you have to at least acknowledge that that he's a contemporary in this time period, right? Um, right. And you have to at least account for him being... Um, I, I don't see a, a ton here where, where you know, we would ne necessarily need to call William's account of this into question. Because we have Brigham backing up the same statement as you just made, that many could make that same claim. All right. I have a couple here just to, as an example. Okay. Wilfred Woodruff said, said the 12 apostles had received their endowment and actually received the keys of the kingdom of God and oracles of God, keys of revelation and pattern of heavenly things. Orson Hyde, and this is um, found in a book called The Return, volume 2, page 253. Orson Hyde said the 12 apostles had been given the keys of the kingdom and every gift, key, and power that Joseph ever had confirmed upon our heads by an anointing. George Miller, in a book called uh, Tal Palo, Tal Astilla. I don't know why it has that a Spanish title. But that means basically uh, it refers to like father, like son. Okay. Tal Palo, Tal Astilla. Palo being the, the stick. Astilla is a splinter. Okay. So it's like like father, like son. Tal palo, tal astilla. That's the... This is where sometimes where me knowing Spanish helps because I don't think anybody could read that from <laughs> that title. I couldn't. No, no. Spanish. says, many of the apostles and elders, having returned from England, Joseph Washington anointed as kings and priests to God. And over the house of Israel, the following named persons, as he said, was commanded of God, which is... James Adams, William Law, William Marks, Willard Richards, Brigham Young, Heber C. Kimball, Newell K. Whitney, Hiram Smith, and myself, and conferred on us patriarchal priesthood. This took place on the 5th and 6th of May, 1842. <laughs> okay. So that actually kind of gives us a date there when Hiram. Right. Um, I don't know if this was their first endowment or not, because they, you know, the way uh, William uh, said of it, was um, he said to be he says ordained to be a priest and a king so it could be that you know William was jumping the gun a little bit with that right but who knows you know but anyway uh, and so from manuscript history of Brigham Young for any person to 
have the fullness of that priesthood, he must be a king and a priest. So you have a lot of these statements that actually give uh, credence to what William, uh, William Smith said. Right. But I, I thought it was interesting that William Smith came out and said so, you know, as far as one man. Because he said, the power was conferred equally on all the 12 and not therefore bestowed on one. Mm. <laughs> that's that's so, pretty uh that's pretty convincing but anyway um as as you can see once once this uh, uh key of knowledge is given to understand what is meant by one at a time on the earth right rather than contradiction you now have complete harmony of scripture yeah and you no longer have to come up with um uh, with with pseudo reasons of why like well the you know there wasn't telephone in those days or right or stuff to that to that extent and to me if we look you know Hugh Nibley made a statement about why the pope doctrine is false now the pope doctrine is that all keys and powers are are held within the, the holy see or the vicar of christ being the pope the bishop of rome Right. Uh, they say that, and he goes on to say why well, that's an incorrect doctrine. He says when, when Christ gave the keys, he didn't give it to just Peter. Right. We read that the keys were given to Peter, James, and John. And subsequently, you know, we can infer from that that he, they possibly gave the keys to the other 12. Who knows? Right. We don't have, a, uh, you know, we don't actually have record of that that I know of. But... What's really, but they sure seem to act like they did. Yeah, and the various missions that they that they performed. But anyway, um, Hugh Nibley used a uh, an analogy that I really liked. He says the reason that the Pope doctrine cannot be uh, cannot be true is that it's likened unto a chain where you have interconnect interconnecting links through time. And he says the strength of the chain is only as strong as its weakest link. Right. He says, but, but more, it was like a rope, that the keys were given to each strand. <laughs> and he says, many strands can fail, but the rope still holds. Right. Right. I, I can see that. Yeah. Yeah, because in a chain, if just one link fails, you're done. You're done. The entire chain's strength is measured by the weakest link. And in one man at a time, the way most people see it, where all the authority is vested only in one man, the whole work is only as strong as the weakest man in that link. Okay. Or in, in that chain. Um, you, can, you can interpret that literally to mean that the weakest member along that chain right. determines the strength of the whole. Right. No, that that makes perfect sense. So I I want. Well, first, let let me ask this question. Okay. Was was there more that you wanted to bring out in this before I move on to to a question I want to clarify? Uh, no, I think we've kind of covered this quite well. Yeah, I do too. I I want to go back to, but never one on earth at a time because 
I I had some questions there, and and I'd imagine a few a few other people listening would too. So on Earth at a time, we we've talked about that meeting that that every time a man and and his wife or wives go through that process of receiving those yeah. keys, the meeting is stopped and then opened again. If we were talking about a worldwide institution where this was being performed, couldn't you have more than one at a time on Earth receiving that if they're in different parts of the globe? Yes. Yes. Okay. And, so how does yeah, that square You're naturally then? leading into where I'd like to clarify, but go ahead. Okay. So then how would that square then? Because it, it talks about only one at a time on the Earth. Right. Well... Um, I want to preface it by having you read uh, section 10 of the Doctrine and Covenants, okay. verse 67 and 68. 10, 67, and 68. Okay, here we go, starting in 67. Behold, this is my doctrine. Whoso repenteth and cometh unto me, the same is my church. Whosoever declareth more or less than this, the same is not of me, but is against me. Therefore, he is not of my church. Okay. You said 67 and 68? Yep. Okay. Now, the takeaway from there is we generally, we we would generally interpret literally the part that says repent. Right. Those who repent. And come on to me, we, we, we seem to give it a figurative or a metaphorical meaning. Right. Well, let's suppose that's literal as well. Those who repent and come unto me become my church. Okay. Those are my church. Now, if you take the word church, you know, generally speaking, you know, the we derive that word from the New Testament and the translation of church is in the Greek was ecclesia, which means body. Okay. Body of Christ, right? Say it. And um, so again, Remember when we brought out in section 84? Yes. That those that, that are faithful in obtaining and magnifying their priesthood become the church and the elect of God? Right. Then it goes on to say kind of why. Because yeah. they receiveth my servants, and then they receive me and receive my father. Right. And so the question I need to ask here is, what does it mean to come unto Christ? Well, I would think there's there's two ways of looking at this, just as you said, right? There's the medical metaphorical way, which would be bringing yourself into alignment with God's will, right? Doing all the things that He asks you to do, whether that's you know studying your scriptures, saying your prayers, attending to your ordinances, any of those things metaphorically could be coming unto Christ. Um, right. I suppose if you wanted to be more literal about it seeking that audience with the savior that or seeing god face to face as right. moses did as joseph did um which really is is kind of one of the the higher promises made within mormonism i think is that we can have that if we're willing to pay the price and and live live in a way that would allow us to abide in his presence right so I believe I will suggest here that it's being literal, and I'll tell you why. Mm. As it says, to those who repent and come unto me. Okay. 
So if repenting is the coming unto him, why is it in addition to it? <laughs> okay. All right. For those who repent and come unto me. Interesting. Okay. Now, I'm going to, let's hold that thought for a minute. Now, again, if we read verse 5 in section 132, where it says that, go ahead, read that. For all who will have a blessing at my hands shall abide the law, which was appointed for that blessing and the conditions thereof as were instituted from before the foundation of the world. Right. Okay. It's saying, for those who will have a blessing at my hands. So who's the administrator of that blessing? That would be the Savior or the Father even. Now, in that case, how many men can be conferred? Just one. On the earth. Just one. Just one. Just one. So, and and this is fascinating because this also gives us a glimpse into the second anointing as well, right? Is that there's a part that's then if I'm if my logic follows is um, there's a part that's done by man. And then there's a part performed by the savior. I would like to say that now the way some people have kind of started to interpret is interpret this is that unless you have the savior's hands upon, you don't have any authority. And I, I wish to, like Joseph S. Smith said, enter my solemn protest, for I know this to be false. <laughs> okay. And that is, um, you have to actually receive these things in order to qualify. Right. You have to have the keys before you can have access. Gotcha. And part of that is perpetuating that which you receive. Now, if, if you read in section 32, verse 7, it's when it's talking about being sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, it says, of him who is anointed and appointed, right? Right. Now, I want to here make a very strong uh, statement about the term of and the term by. Now, go back to verse 39. Okay. Read that. David's wives and concubines were given unto him of me by the hand of Nathan my servant, and others of the prophets who had the keys of this power. Okay, so what that's telling us is it was done of God's authority, but it was performed by someone else. Right. Now, initially, we know that Joseph Smith had this authority, this fullness of authority and power conferred upon him by the Lord himself. Right. And things have to be done of his authority. Right. Notice it's not necessarily by. Yes. It's of him who is anointed and appointed. And it says, and I have appointed unto my servant Joseph, and there is never but one on the earth at a time on whom this is conferred. So if any of these men, even if nobody qualified to receive that authority between us and Joseph Smith, if he passed on the keys and they had the authority to pass on the keys down to our day, we can still step up and claim that privilege. Right. And would have the keys to do so. Yeah. So I do believe there may have been a, 
sprinkling of people who have achieved this, like John Taylor is one, I believe, who did. I don't have evidence to that effect. I do have evidence that he, you know, uh, spoke with the Savior. And, and well, I don't, I'm not going to call it conclusive evidence, but we have testimony that he talked to the Savior in 1886. Right. The eight-hour meeting. In the eight-hour meeting. But right there, uh, it's it doesn't specify whether, you know, the, the fullness was conferred upon, uh, confirmed upon him by the Savior. Right. We have. We don't have evidence of that, so we don't really know. I think we can know if we seek this knowledge from God Himself, but as far as having an actual record of it, we really don't. We can only surmise. Right. But um, to me, what that shows the of and by shows that it's done of that authority, but by whom it's done can be different by of whom it's done. Right. No, that makes that makes sense. Okay, no, that clears that up. That's good. That's one of those things I wanted to get to get cleared up here. And so because of that, because we focused on the the word of and by, we can we can kind of confer can, or uh kind of come to the conclusion that this doesn't because you maybe someone didn't receive that personal visitation yet, they can still act in that authority even without that right. personal. Okay. Now, that gets me to my next point, and that's the difference between keys and power. Okay. Like we mentioned earlier, the keys are that which enable you to have access. And so I think that the power can only be uh, given to you without uh, unconditionally when you have met certain conditions yeah. as is spoken of in section seven but and there are several instances in scriptures where the lord confirms this type of power upon his servants like he did with moses like elijah like he did with uh, joshua like he did with uh, like jesus and in helaman um in helaman uh, Chapter 10, verses 5 through 7, it's really interesting what it says there. Do you have it ready, or, or do, uh, would you like me to look it up real quick? I'm looking it up now. I'm almost there. Okay. Helaman, what, 10, 5 through 7? Yeah. Okay. And here it is. And now, because thou hast done this with such unweariness... Behold, I will bless thee forever, and I will make thee mighty in word and in deed, and in faith and in works, yea, even that all things shall be done um, unto thee according to thy word. For thou shalt not ask that which is contrary to my will. Behold, thou art Nephi, and I am God. Behold, I declare unto thee in the presence of mine angels that ye shall have power over this people, and shall smite the earth with famine and with pestilence and destruction, according to the wickedness of this people. Behold, I give unto you power, that whatsoever ye shall seal on earth shall be sealed in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven, and thus shall ye have power among this people. Mm. So it seems yeah. pretty. Oh, go ahead. It seems pretty uh, intriguing to me. That he's promising him power over the elements in a way. Yeah. Yep. 
and this has been delivered to to uh, a few uh, very few people in scripture but right. you know moses could part the red sea you know yeah. and now i do believe that even before this power is granted you know by faith that the lord may exercise his power in your behalf but i think i believe at a certain point he trusts you with that power yeah joseph smith once made the statement that the lord had told him that he would have the power to remove his enemies if all if, if all he did was say so and joseph st stated that he hesitated to use that power lest they should repent right which shows to me that is why the lord blessed him with that power well, yeah, and, and it says that in 5 there in Helaman, where it says, uh, for thou shalt not ask that which is contrary to my will. So the Lord is basically saying, look, we've, we've been together a while. I trust that your will lines up with my will, and I know you're not going to do anything that's contrary to my will. And right. so the these things I give unto you. And that's probably really the qualifier, I would suppose— to having that other visitation, right? One one of the qualifiers is that our, we've aligned our will with that of the fathers perfectly. So I believe that men that have received the keys are in a position to be able to have, as, as it were, a theophany mm -hmm. or a personal visitation of the Lord Jesus Christ, even the Father, to... Um, it says that they will take up their abode with you. It even says that the pure in heart shall see God. Right. So there seems to be something about um, what is, you know, and I believe a lot of that is actually tied to what we term in Mormonism as charity or the pure love of Christ. That we are possessed of that. We, we will be determined to have a pure heart. And as a, and I wish to say that it says they shall seek God. And I think I see a, a double meaning there. That you have become one like God, so he can't he will no longer withhold himself from you. Right. Because you're now acclimated to be in his presence. And and second of all, when you look in the mirror, you behold God as well. Because we're creating his likeness and image. Right. Right. And that would go with recognizing that spark of divinity within all of us, I think. Right. So basically, you know, according to Mormon, all men are born with the spirit of Christ. And Christ is, you know, the pure love of Christ is that quality that we should all seek to magnify. Right. But I do believe that spirit of Christ, we, we're born with it. Yeah. But it's up to us to nourish it or neglect it. And in accordance with that nourishment or rejection, the more we become like God or the more we become different from him. No, I, I would agree. And and I think that's, I go back to this scripture often because even before I, I really understood fundamentalism or a lot of these deeper concepts, there was something powerful where the Savior's in the garden suffering and he's like, I know what's coming. This is horrible, you know, but not my will, your will be done there. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's hugely important, whether we've had that second anointing or not to get to that point to where we can 
align our will with with that of God's. I think that's the only thing we really truly have to surrender that is truly ours is our will, our agency. Right. Do you have any more questions? Uh... No, no. Well, I do. I got two more, but but okay. these are kind of concluding questions. So I want to make sure that you've hit all the points you want to hit first, Sean. No, I think that, uh, I mean, there's a lot of things I can hit on, but at some I, point they start becoming tangential to the. Yep. Yep. And, and, and I feel, look, I feel like we got, we covered a lot because not only did we cover uh, one manism, but we also got into a pretty good conversation about the second anointing as well. So I feel like we've covered some really good stuff. And if you don't want to answer this, I, I completely understand. Um, but in your estimation, what, what are some of the dangers of adhering to the one man doctrine? But what are some of the dangers? Yeah. Um, I think it promotes, I think it promotes a blind obedience of man. Um, I think it promotes, uh, a spiritual laziness on the individual, kind of like what, uh, Joseph Smith said that he likened the 14th chapter of Ezekiel to the current station, uh, current position of the Latter-day Saints, that they be, they neglect the duties devolving upon themselves because they rely on the prophet too much, right. and therefore their minds become darkened. Um, I believe it actually weakens the faith overall. Right. Where uh, fewer and fewer people can answer difficult questions. And I think it, uh, I think it exposes the flock, if you will, to the wolves. Yeah. Because they haven't been equipped to think for themselves, and in, and that when that happens, when they get uh, an anti-Mormon in this case, can usually uh, wreck their testimonies. Right. Um, they fall more prey to um, false narratives that exist. Because they don't understand the concept. Like, for instance, you have the the polygamy, uh, Joseph Smith polygamy denial. You know, they come up with statements from Joseph Smith where he seems to be speaking about it in a negative way. Or doesn't seem to, he actually does. But they don't understand context. Because when Joseph Smith revealed these principles, it wasn't to the church organization. It was done within the holy order of Nauvoo. Right. And there he taught things that, that weren't accepted as doctrine yet within the church. Yeah. It wasn't until 1852 that Brigham Young um, presented these before the people, and then they voted to accept it as a tenet of their faith. And this is the reason that we had one of the sections in uh, Doctrine and Covenants replaced by Section 132, because it was a, a different law of the church at that point. Right. Previous to that is that you, you could only have one wife. Right. And in fundamentalist circles, we like to say, well, that was a law to the church, but not to the priesthood, which is correct. Because the Holy Order of Nauvoo was a priesthood organization. Right. That dealt specifically with the endowments and the keys of the priesthood. Gotcha. Gotcha. And and I want to be careful here, and, and and I want to say this: I'm not saying if you're in a group that has a one man that that we're calling your one man bad. That's not what we're saying. 
I, I wouldn't characterize it as that. What what I am saying is that the the one man doctrine, in my estimation, does open up the the door to a little bit of tyranny. Now, you can have, like you were saying, Sean, a benevolent dictator, and in which case things are fine on the surface, right? But you can't guarantee who's going to be the next man up. Right. And you can't guarantee that it's always going to be like that. We've certainly seen the one-man doctrine abused, right? Warren mm-hmm. Jeffs can't do, and, and this time I'm going to name names, obviously. Warren Jeffs couldn't do what he did without the one-man doctrine. Correct. Because if someone would have been able to make the assertion that he was on par with Warren Jeffs, you could have questioned his decision making and been been um, within the pale of orthodoxy to do it. Um, and so it, it opens this up to some of those abuses. You used Ervil LeBaron as an example. Um, and so we have seen where this where this opens up uh, the, the, the door to that tyranny. But I want to go out of the way and say, you know, not everybody who's leading a group is is Warren Jeffs, right? I do believe there are right. good men out there trying to do the best they can. But understand that this doctrine does give give way for this. I also want to say this. Brigham Young, towards the end of his life, was very nervous about the power that was consolidated within the offices there. Um, he had made the statement, my worst fear for this people is that they would be apt to follow their leaders to hell. And so I, I think even later in Brigham's life, we see that that he grows concerned about this a little bit. And we have Brigham also admitting that, yeah, there's there's other authority out there as well. He was definitely looking to consolidate Mormonism under one banner, and I think rightfully so for safety. Um I cut I cut Brigham an enormous amount of slack for all he had to deal with. And in no way would I ever throw him under the bus, as it were, because he was indispensable for that time period. But even he realizes that that too much power consolidated in one spot can lead to some pretty nasty things. If someone obviously you've come to these conclusions as well. That, that that you don't hold to the one-man doctrine. And it sounds like maybe you came to some of this while you were in a group that that uh, that practiced this. If someone's in a group and, and they don't necessarily, you know, they listen to this and they get shook a little bit, what would be your advice to them? Should, you know, how, how does someone navigate those waters while still being in a group and then maybe starting to question the one-man doctrine a little bit? Well, uh, I would start by taking comfort that there are probably others out there who have this ability, who have this um, authority, whose direction is more in line with what the scriptures inform us a servant of God would be like. Um, if you don't know who they are, well, you at least know the, of the possibility that they exist. And one thing that gave me um, that gave me hope was. The realization that um, close close to 500 men um, received the fullness in the Nauvoo era, and that between 1850 to 1900, within the church organization, they averaged one second anointing a day. Whoa! So that gets into 
you know, about 14,000 or so by the time you, you reach 1900. Now, of course, not all of those guys lived throughout that whole time. Many passed away and so forth. But in Joseph F. Smith's administration, they had roughly about 2,500. Wow. And it it didn't effectively come to a stop until the Heber J. Grant or, um, administration. I believe in his entire administration, they only had eight. Holy cow. Which is, which is uh, remarkable because... He was the second longest reigning right. uh, president of the church, uh, Brigham Young being, I think, the longest. See, Brigham Young, you know, he wasn't... I, I, what year was he sustained as president? Ooh, I'd have to look. The 1850s, right. I believe. Uh, I'm not sure about that, but I know there was a, a, a time there frame that There was a time passed. when it was just under apostolic direction, right? So, yeah, so it depends on where you want to start. You know, effectively, uh, whether or not officially, but maybe effectively, you could say his leadership started in, in 1844 mm -hmm. um, and um, cemented by the Transfiguration thing, I think, which took place, what, in 1845, 46? Yep, yep. Well, anyway, from there to 1877, right, is when he died? Yep. So how many uh, how many years uh, transpired there is the time he was in About charge? Thirty two years, if my math is correct. And uh, Heber J. Grant didn't he come in around nineteen eighteen? Yes. And was it forty four or forty five when he died? I want to say it was forty five. Okay, so however long that was, um, just shy of thirty years. Right. So he was in there quite a long time. You know, compared to other presidents since his since his day, but I find it remarkable. You know that uh, Joseph F. Smith didn't he take over around nineteen oh nineteen oh nine, if I'm not mistaken. That late? Maybe no. Not. He was president nineteen oh four. Oh four. Okay. So I think he took over basically around nineteen oh three, nineteen oh four, around that time. Okay. All right. And then he left in nineteen eighteen. So he was in there quite a while too, but not not nearly as long as Heber J. Grant. And um, and under his administration, they had 2,500 right. administrations of the second anointing and only eight in Heber J. Grant's. That's a very telling thing about where their mindset was. Right. So um, I've heard that, you know, in the church, they still perform them. Yep. Yep. Uh, but I don't really know what it is they're giving them or not giving them. But it is uh, it is telling that most members of the church have no uh, knowledge of what these things are. Right. And I don't think that should be the case. I think uh, the knowledge of these things should be there, especially to those people who have been endowed. Yeah, I, I be as, because as, in the endowment they they're told that they are anointed to become. Yeah. And and I think you made a really good case that that is something that that we should aspire to. That isn't something that we should look at as something that's unattainable. Right. And and Joseph Smith was uh, was asked if if it was uh, if we could be saved without living uh, the ordinances of, of the priesthood, and he says no, at least not the fullness of it. Right. 
And he went on to say that you have to receive all the ordinances of the priesthood um, and obey them, or you will lose. You may lose the whole. Right. So, from his point of view, these were absolutely necessary. And when I read in his journal, especially when he started um, performing the second anointing, he had a sense of urgency about it. Yeah. Yep. And that I, I think that's beyond dispute right and you know when you read in uh, in the journal entry of september 28 1843 it says there that this is the greatest or the highest priesthood on the earth yeah the highest quorum of the priesthood on the earth now when i when i found this myself and i was looking and i was looking and, and the heading on it a church historian wrote Joseph is is anointed by a group of elders kind of thing. And then when you read the actual entry, it says he was, an, uh, he was anointed king and priest into the highest order of the priesthood and selected as president by the same body. I'm like, boy, that talk about underselling it. Right. Yeah. Because the entry itself says it's the highest. And here yep. it's, oh, it's just a group of elders getting together. Right. I find that 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 little premise that he, that he wrote there was trying to diffuse the importance of what was happening there, and why they put it that way, I don't know. Hmm. Yeah, there's there's any number of reasons, privacy being one, or maybe even, you know, trying to once again instill this idea of okay, you have these, but now you have to go be of service, right? kind of making sure it wasn't used as just a status symbol but no no what i'm getting at is the historian that quoted that oh he, the historian quoted that okay yeah I he said that, was that like a preamble okay that's my fault and, and, and to me it was uh he was really underplaying it right and okay. under yeah and underestimating what is actually taking place there yeah yeah well a group of elders give me a break yeah no i i suppose from that context if it's something that may have been lost to the group of wherever this historian came from it's not a comfortable position to be in no if if you've lost it because you now have to kind of downplay it or else some of maybe your your authority claims begin to wane but yeah well, dude, this was good stuff. I mean, we covered a lot and and we actually got got something done I'd been wanting to do in addition to this one, which was kind of breaking down the second anointing a little bit. So you did a great job, man. I appreciate it. Well, you're welcome. Anything you else you want to add before we wrap up? Um, basically, what I want to say is, as as the Lord provided a ram in the thicket in lieu of Isaac, the Lord has you covered, and and uh, if you seek him out in these things, he will bring you to where you need to be. These things are still in existence, and and um, they aren't governed by priestcraft. They are actually priesthood. And, and I would like to leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Beautiful stuff, my man. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Bye, everybody.